So if you found your way to 2 Chronicles 29, let me invite you to stand with me. We'll read together and then we'll remain standing uh, as they lead us in song. Then King Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary and Judah. And he ordered the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. They slaughtered the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Slaughtered the lambs, sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought the male goats to the sin offering before the king and the assembly. They laid their hands on them. The priests slaughtered them and purged the altar with the blood, notice, to atone for all Israel. For the king ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. Notice they were following prescribed worship at this point. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priest with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang and the trumpets sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, now that you have consecrated yourself to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifice and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought the sacrifices and thank offerings and all those who were willing brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. And all these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. The consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3000 sheep. But the priests were too few so that they were unable to skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, the brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was completed, until the other priests had consecrated themselves. For the Levites were more conscientious to consecrate themselves than the priests. There were also many burnt offerings with the fat of the peace offerings, with the libation of the burnt offerings. Notice, thus the service of the house of the Lord was established again. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. These sermons on worship as we come to our second one continue to grow. Um, I'm pretty confident we'll find ourselves at least uh, four deep, if not a few more than that. Uh, just depends on how the Lord continues to instruct me. But before we ever begin, hopefully I'll remember to do this because I always want to clarify what it is exactly we're talking about because we use the worship pretty, I don't know, not literally or specifically as we should at times. So what we're talking about or what we're walking through for the next several weeks is what we're doing now. When I say worship, I mean when the people of God have gathered corporately for the purpose of glorifying God through worship. It's when we gather to pray in a way that glorifies God. It's when we gather to sing in a way that glorifies God. It's when we gather to sit under the Word of God. It's where we gather to glorify God through our relationships with one another. And oftentimes, and it will be more often following these services, I'm absolutely convinced, when we gather at the table. Now, when we're doing those things, we are worshiping the Lord. I'm not talking about when you go to a Christian concert. I'm not talking about when you ride down the car and going to work and you've got the radio on. I'm not talking about your personal worship, although corporate worship should be a precursor and a pattern for personal worship. 
But we're not talking about those things. We're not talking about VBS. We're not talking about certain things that we do where we might sing or pray or those sort of things. I'm talking about what we do now when we gather as the people of God for the purpose of worship. Now, I want to explain something to you in way of illustration, so hopefully it'll help you uh, as I walk through this sermon this morning because I woke up with these two words on my heart and my mind. My wife had bought me a book in 1997 about shepherding the church, and it was something that that guy said, so I went upstairs and I found the book, and I thought it would be helpful for us to understand, and it's dealing with the two words form and function. Now, let me give you a simple illustration. We bought some horses, we got a pasture, but we need a horse barn. That's our function. We've got to take care of the horses, so we've got to build a barn. Now, the form is, what sort of barn are we going to build that we're going to do what it is that we need to do? So if you go about the business of building this horse barn, and in that barn you put tile floors, you put nice wood structure and trim and those sort of things and crown mold, you hang some chandeliers, you put a big couch and a large TV in that room and a dining room table and you come over to my house, I don't know that you would understand the function of the building that I have built. In fact, you might say to me, oh, this is a very nice place for you to live. And you go, oh, it's not for me to live, it's for me to tend to my horses. And you go, now this is very peculiar because your form, your building doesn't fit your function. Does that make sense? What you're saying that you're going to do does not match the form in which you built this thing to approach what you're going to do. Now, the, way, the reason I bring that up to you this morning to help you all the way through this sermon is our function is very simple. It's described for us. Worship, the purpose of worship, the function of worship, the reason that we've gathered is to glorify God. Now, how we go about that is our forms. And there's whole lots of forms in which we can do that. In fact, I named several different forms this morning in which we glorify God. We glorify God through prayer. We glorify God through preaching. We glorify God through singing. We glorify God through our interactions with one another. We glorify God by coming to the table. The forms can take many forms or different styles of forms, right? But the function never changes. And what's led us to all these various sermons on worship is I don't know if you walked into a typical church in our day, you could guess the function based on the forms. I'm afraid that once you sat there and went through the whole service, you'd go, what just happened? Because I think that they've forgotten that the singular purpose in meeting together corporately is to glorify God in worship. Because I saw a lot of things that I found very entertaining, but I don't think the form fit the function. Does that make sense? So that's what we're trying to take on through all these various sermons that we're walking through. And we dealt with the problems with much of the forms last week because worship has progressively become man-centered since the very first church plan in the very first century. And that's always the problem with being sin-natured or being depraved. You're always moving away from God and you're always moving toward yourself. That's just the way it's going to be until the, the Lord returns. But thankfully, we, there's been course corrections over the years that have reset that moment where we remembered that worship is not about us, but it is about the Lord. So if that's the function, then if worship is solely for God and to God, we have to understand because of who we are as people as human beings that are fallen, we have to intentionally make it not to anything or anyone else and not for anything or anyone else, especially ourselves. You can't just sit passively aside or sit passively aside and say worship is for God and worship is to God. Because if you do that, there's going to be this tilt or this continual slide away from the Lord and toward ourselves, to please ourselves, to entertain ourselves, to be for ourselves. So we have to be purposeful and we have to be intentional not to do this while we intentionally do the other or make it about God. Now, I mentioned course corrections. As I said, probably the biggest one that's outside of Scripture came during the Reformation. That was a massive course correction in all things Christian. But if you want to find the course correction in the Bible, we read that this morning. I don't know of any other place where there was such a significant turn 
in the worship of God than where we read this morning in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. They were in some critical times. The northern tribes had already been carried off by Assyria. Worship had gone to pot, some language that we might understand. And so the Lord leads Hezekiah to say, we got to start over. And we've got to make this about what it's supposed to be about, and that is the worship of God. So hopefully the Lord is doing a course correction in our own hearts because, again, we find ourselves at very critical times and we need to return to a faithful form of worship. We are in desperate need of a course correction, a restart. Now, last week I dealt with the problems and we talked a long time about the problems in worship and we talked about the purpose of worship. But This morning, I want us to go back. Because if we're going to understand worship, I think you have to go back to its foundations. And the foundations for worship is found in the Old Testament. So my intention this morning is for us to see the forms of worship in the Old Testament. But then we're going to make our way to the New Testament and see how everything radically changed. Because God himself is the one who affected the greatest change in worship. Because when you walk out of the Old Covenant, you walk in the New Covenant, everything's different. Everything's radically different. So we need to see those differences before we begin to discuss forms. There's pointless for us to begin to discuss forms and changes in forms until we understand the old covenant worship, the changes that God's made in the new covenant. Once we get that foundation laid, then we can begin to understand what worship needs to look like. So let's go back and look at the old covenant worship. And to do that, I think the best place is to start in Exodus 20. So turn there with me. I want to read verses 1 through 5. It's when God is giving the law. He's already rescued his people out of Egypt. He's brought them to the mountain. And this is where he lays out the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, the most significant part of the law. And the very first thing that he wants to address is worship. So Exodus chapter 20, look with me in verse 1. The word says there, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters under the earth or in the water under the earth. You shall not, notice two words, worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God immediately begins His law with helping them understand that they're going to be prone to worship anything and everything else, but they're not to do that as the people of God. He'll go on to say that He alone is the one that they are to worship. He, is the one, he alone is the one that they are to serve. Worship is going to be very particular. It's always to one God. It is always for one God. Now, the two words I want us to spend just a little bit of time with to help you understand, because we'll walk into the New Testament, is the two words worship and serve. Now, the word worship in Hebrew is the word shaha, and it literally means to bow down. So what God is saying is you shall not bow down. You shall not submit yourself. You shall not humble yourself. You shall not fear anything or anyone else except me. All your worship, all your humility, all your submission, all your fear goes toward me and me alone. The one who rescued you out of the land of Egypt. Now, the second word is the word avad, and it literally means to serve. And there's two word, roots to this word you got to pay attention to. One is to work and the other is to submit or slavery. Okay, that gives you some idea of what we're talking about. To work and to be a slave of. So here's the picture. You shall not follow. You shall not obey. You shall not pursue. You shall not please anything or anyone else except me. I am the one you are to obey. I am the one you are to please. I am the one you are to follow. I am the one you are to pursue. You shall not worship, bow down, submit your life to, and you shall not serve, follow, obey anyone, anything but me. I am the Lord your God. Now, what's fascinating about those two words in Hebrew is when you walk into the Greek and the New Testament, they become one word because you can't separate them. It's the word latruo. 
So basically, anytime you see the words worship or serve in the New Testament, it's the same word in the Greek, because how do you separate those two terms? You can't worship God if you're not serving God. And likewise, you can't serve God if you're not worshiping God. It's just two sides of the same coin. You can't separate those thoughts. Therefore, it is one word, Latruo, in the New Testament. Now, God lays down this for them to understand you're going to be prone to worship something. It'll be a false God, it'll be a false thing, or it will be yourself, which is what's prominent today. You cannot do that as the people of God. It's me and me alone that you're going to worship and serve. So from there, he begins to give them the law, and it's basically a how-to manual as you walk to Exodus 38. How to do everything. How to live in light of their relationship to God, how to construct the tabernacle, how to make the garments of the priest, how to sanctify the priest. And then you get all the way to Exodus chapter 38. If you have subtitles, it's going to be super helpful. Exodus 38, the subtitle reads, the tabernacle is completed, not built, completed. Made all the parts, all the pieces, we're done with this. You look at Exodus chapter 39, you got the subtitle, we made all the garments. Everything's been sewed up. Everything's been buttoned up. They haven't been put on, but everything is ready to go, right? You turn the page, you get into Exodus chapter 40. The tabernacle is built. You get to the end of 40, the glory of God descends. So here we are. I mean, we're ready. What are we ready for? Oh, we're ready for worship. Everything's been put in place. All the pieces, all the puzzles, all the nuts and the bolts and screws, all that stuff. The building has been constructed the priests are ready. The glory of the God fills the temple. But what's the very next chapter in the very next book about? We got to get the worshipers ready because they're not ready. We got a whole group of people, an entire nation of people that has been called for the specific purpose of worship, except they're not ready to worship. Why are they not ready to worship? Because God is holy and they are not. And so God's going to put the system in place to get the worshipers ready to go before a holy God and to fall down and worship him and serve him. And the only way that you can get sinners ready to approach a holy God is to deal with their sin. And so you have all these sacrifices and the most significant ones are going to deal with the subject of the sin in their life. Now, let me give you three categories that we're going to see as we walk through just briefly the sacrifices is the first category is you're going to have the required sacrifices. There's just three. You've got the required ones. You've got the voluntary ones that you just offer free will. And then the third ones is the kind of the group, the catch-all. You've got the Thanksgiving offerings, the communal offerings, the wave offerings. Those were always third. Okay? So let's go back up and talk about the required ones. Now, you should immediately know what the required sacrifices are supposed to accomplish because we just talked about that. The required sacrifices have to deal with the issue of sin. And so that's what they do. If you'll notice with me in Leviticus chapter four, verse one. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them we need to talk about that, basically. And it's every category of people that have to deal with the issue of sin before we worship. The corporate body has to deal as a whole with the issue of sin. The important man or the leader has to deal with the issue of sin before we worship. And the common man, every single person has to deal with the issue of sin before we engage God in worship. For instance, notice verse 13. He's going to talk about the congregation. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 13. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded them not to be done, they become guilty. Which, by the way, Hebrew for sin offering literally means fault offering. You're at fault. Okay? Now, notice verse 14, you'll see how they're going to deal with this issue. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of the meeting. Verse 16 enters the priest. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood from the bull to the tent of the meeting. Notice the purpose of all this in verse 20. 
He shall also do with the bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. First offering. We've got to deal with the sins of the congregation. Notice the participation. The congregation goes to get the bull and the congregation is the one that kills the bull or puts the bull to death. Notice the mediation of the priest. The priest takes up the blood and does the service to the ministry of the Lord to cleanse. After the function of the sin sacrifice, it says they will be forgiven for atonement has been made for them. But we're not done yet. Notice verse 22. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any of the things which the Lord his God has commanded them not to be done, he becomes guilty. There's your word again. He becomes at fault. Verse 26. All its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar as in the case of the fat offering of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for that leader in regard to his sin and he will be forgiven. Everybody's the same thing. Notice verse 27 because we're not done yet. Now if any one of the common people sins, Leviticus 4.27, unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord God has commanded not to be done and he becomes guilty... If his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. He shall, notice the participation, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Verse 31, enters the priest. He shall remove all of its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. So we're going to worship the Lord today. Okay, we've got some sacrifices that need to take place because you're a group of sinners. We're going to offer the sacrifice for the congregation. We're going to offer the sacrifice for the leadership. And we're going to offer the sacrifice for every single individual that's going to be participating in regard to sin that they've become aware of. Now, the second offering that we've got to deal with before we come into the idea of worship is the guilt offering. Now, these there's some overlap here, so don't let me lose you. But in the guilt offerings is oftentimes where there has to be repayment or restitution back for the particular wrong that's been committed. Now, I want to read you some of these. So look with me at Leviticus chapter five. Notice verse five. These are different offerings. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in any one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. Different sin offering, different things that you can violate. But nonetheless, if you violated these particular sins against the Lord, you had to also bring a guilt offering. Now, what's so significant about the guilt offering is this is not just your violations against the Lord. It's your violations against your brother. That's what really makes this, these particular sacrifices unique. Look at Leviticus chapter 6, verse 1. Still, we're dealing with the issue of these guilt offerings. Leviticus 6, 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully, notice, against the Lord and deceives his companion. In other words, if you sinned against your companion, you've sinned against the Lord, and we've got to deal with this. He deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him or through robbery, or if he's extorted from his companion, or if he has found what was lost and he lied about it or sworn falsely so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do. Then it shall be that when he sins and becomes guilty, that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he's got to by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full, add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to the valuation for the guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven 
for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt implied against his brother. So we've got the sin offerings generally because you've done something, congregational, leader, or the common man. We've got to deal with that right out of the gate. But then comes the guilt offerings, and they were particular violations against the Lord, but most significantly violations that you've committed against your brother. You've got to deal with those before we roll up in here and worship the Lord. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, why am I in the Old Testament? Because I know when we get to the New Testament, all these sacrifices have been replaced by Christ. So why are we even worrying about this? Well, let me give you a for instance of how our Lord carries these thoughts into the New Testament. Matthew chapter five. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Now, how many times have you and I sat here in worship with our worship not being received because we had division with a brother or sister in our life? Now, I know I told you this several years ago as an example, but anytime I think about this, I think about what the Lord did to me one time. There were two men that were qualified to administer the Lord's Supper in the church that we were a part of in the Northwest. Two. I was one of them. I'm standing there with the plate in my hand ready to go when the Spirit of God reminded me of someone that I had had heated conversation, still broken, a brother, that week. And I know the Spirit of God doesn't speak this way, but this is how I receive it. Nonetheless, really? You're really going to do this? So I looked at the other guy standing up there with me and I said, I'm out. I handed him my second plate and I sat down in the front pew. And when he came around with communion, I was like, I can't. I realized what's the point in going through the motions if God's not going to receive the ministry or the worship. Not going to do it. And so we even know from a New Testament perspective, be careful when you come up in here. First, examine the relationships with you have with your brother. And that's really difficult, right? Because a lot of times we argue with our spouses on the way to church. But at the same time, you need to realize I'm about to come into the presence of God. I need to get this sorted before I come in here and worship a holy God. Likewise, that's exactly why I gave you the opportunity this morning to deal with your sins before you worship the Lord. How many times have we rolled up in here to worship the Lord with unconfessed, unrepentant, active sin in our life and we play the part? We sing the songs. We might get called on to pray. We might even lift our hands, but the Lord's like, sorry, not receiving you were approaching a holy God and you rolled up in here with sin in your life that you're not even dealing with? Really? That's Joey's version of the Holy Spirit. Really? You see, this was a very serious matter. This was a very sober matter before worship began because the people had to prepare their hearts to meet with a holy God. And so the very first order of business is let's deal with the sin through the sacrifices, in order that you might come before Him and be accepted by Him. You know, I can't overestimate the seriousness of it. Don't turn here, but I jotted this down because I was reading this this morning and I was reminded of just how serious this is. So here's another passage that I eventually got to deal with. But listen to this going on at the church at Corinth, okay? It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and that's what we'll talk about, in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. But a man must examine himself in doing so. He is to eat the bread and the drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, notice, Many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, i.e. died. New Testament. Worship's going on. It's in the context of the congregation meeting. They're coming to the table. They're doing it in a manner that is unworthy that we'll eventually talk about before I finish worship. But here's the seriousness of the matter. Paul says, 
Let me tell you something. Y'all just roll up in here any way you please and you don't do this in the way that the Lord wants you to. It's the reason that many of you have fallen sick. Some of you have died. You really need to be careful when you approach to God in worship. That was the idea in the Old Testament. And that idea has been totally lost in our day. There is no seriousness. In fact, the church that we were a part of many, many years ago is the very first thing you did was get yourself clapping and get yourself excited. And the very first song that we sang was always just one of those that was just almost ecstatic because you had to build yourself up. Oh, that's not the picture that I can find anywhere in the Old or the New Testament. We approach the Lord on our knees because we need forgiveness for our sin. Now, the second group of offerings, I got to move on. We're going to be here way too long already. But the second group of offerings you find in Leviticus chapter one, and these are the voluntary offerings or the dedicatory, the offerings of dedication. They're characterized by something that was pleasant to the Lord. It was a burn offering, grain offering, fellowship offering. And here's the deal. The voluntary offerings were not accepted by God unless Israel had first presented any required sacrifice for their sins to atone for or to pay for their sins, i.e. the sin offering or the guilt offering. So we're going in order or prescribed worship. The second thing is my dedication offerings to the Lord. And those were not received until we had dealt with the issue of sin. Now that we've dealt with the issue of sin, our dedicatory offerings would be received by the Lord. Now, here's where I don't want to lose you this morning, because often you read in the text burnt offerings and you need to know there's we're talking about two different things. Many of the offerings were burnt. Therefore, they were called burnt offerings. But there is a particular category of burnt offerings, and these are the voluntary offerings. It was an aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. Does that make sense? So don't get lost with the words burnt offering. You can be talking about two different things. But again, the association between the sin and the burnt offering suggested that before the worshiper could fully devote whatever it was to the Lord, he must know that his sins had been atoned for. Notice with me Leviticus chapter one, verse one. Notice this first dedicatory offering. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Notice that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands, the participation on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And you're like, time out. I thought the sin sacrifices made atonement. Oh no, it's everywhere. It's just like, I want to offer whatever part of my uh, fruit from the field to the Lord this morning. Okay, we'll bring a burnt offering. Why? Just because you're of sin nature and you're worshiping a holy God. It's not particular. The particulars will dealt with the sin sacrifices. You're going to offer a sin sacrifice just to dedicate something to the Lord because God is holy and your nature is depraved. It's everywhere. So you're like, oh, wait a minute, doesn't Jesus take care of the sin, the guilt, and now this burnt? Yes, he does. But I need you to understand the weight of worshiping God. Just because you're depraved, just because you're fallen, there's a sacrifice that has to be made for you to approach a holy God and worship Him. And this is just the voluntary offerings. Now, the third group of offerings I classify as fellowship offerings or thanksgiving offerings. And this is basically everything else. Grain offerings, peace offerings, wave offerings. This in its order always come third. Now, let me show you. We're about to go to Hebrews, but... Go back with me to Exodus chapter 29 and I'll roll quickly through the consecration of the priest so you can see the order. Exodus chapter 29. Now, notice subtitle over 29. We're consecrating the priest. We're setting them aside for the service of the Lord. If you have a subtitle over verse 10, notice the sacrifices to consecrate them. Notice verse 14. 
but the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering. So the very first offering that we got to deal with and set aside the priest is we got to deal with is sin. Now notice with me down in verse 18. This is more of the dedicatory offerings. You shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is the burnt offering of the Lord that we read about in Leviticus 1. Now to notice verse 24. Third offering. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his son, and he shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. In other words, when you begin to begin to notice this, it's coming in a particular order, even to the consecrations of the priests so that they can worship the Lord. We've got to deal with his sin. We've got to dedicate his life. And then he presents a wave offering or a fellowship offering or a thanksgiving offering to the Lord thirdly. Okay? So that's the order. Now, let's go to Hebrews 9. Because when we walk into the new covenant worship, everything changes. Everything Massive changes. Now remember Hebrews is at the very end of Paul's stuff. 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Then you walk into Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 9. Let me give you a list of changes and then we'll notice them very quickly as I walk through Hebrews. There's a change in the place of worship. Temples no longer. There's a change in the priests or the mediators of worship. There's a change in the required sacrifice for sin. And there is a change in the worshipers. And then there is a change in the dedicatory sacrifices of the worshiper. Everything's different now. Okay? But again, the foundation's laid, so everything should make sense. Now notice Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, meaning there were particular things that had to be done. He gives a brief description, verse 2. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which was the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, which we know where the spirit of God resided. Verse six. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Meaning, under the old system, there were sacrifices every single day because they drew up to worship the Lord and they had to deal with the sin in their life first. Okay? Now notice the change in verse 11. But, this is your turn in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he calls himself the tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So just in those few words, we replace the tabernacle, we replace the priest, and we replace the sacrifice. But I want you to notice verse 13 and 14. This is significant. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled, notice, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Hang on. The old system worked. But the problem with the old system, we know, is it didn't do anything for the inside of the man. But it was sufficient for the Old Testament worship and it cleaned the outside and made it so man could worship the Lord. Okay? God gave him a system that worked, but needed to be replaced. Notice the difference in verse 14. If those things work, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, now we're on the inside, from dead works to latruo, I don't know how you want to translate that word, worship or serve the living God. It's the same thing. There's that word I was talking about. How much more? Which means the work that Christ has accomplished has cleansed you from the inside out and now you can worship the Lord from the inside and that you couldn't do under the old covenant. Oh, your worship is spot on now because it, now it can come from the heart and now it can be accepted by God because it comes from the inner man. Okay, Verse 15, For this reason He is the mediator, 
of a new covenant. Turn the page, Hebrews chapter 10. Now, there are two things that have been done moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament that the writer of Hebrews wants to talk more about. They're so significant, okay? The first thing that he wants to talk about is this sacrifice that replaced all the sacrifices. And the second thing that he wants to hammer down is the change in the worshiper, okay? Now watch this, Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a consciousness because there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So that's the problem with the sacrifices in the Old Covenant. They could not deal with your conscience or the inner man because you knew what was right and wrong and you did it anyway and you knew you violated the law of God. But watch what the sacrifice of Christ does. Notice verse 5. Therefore, when he, Christ, comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. It is in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 10. And by this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he offered, having offered, one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Look what he has done. The sin sacrifices, the guilt sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the dedicatory, the required, the voluntary, all those sacrifices for sin were all swallowed up with the sacrifice of the Son of God. You and I have been set free that we like to sing about, but we've been set free to worship God. Not freedom to live how we want. We've been freed up so we can worship God from the heart and it be accepted. So you're like, well, then why should I deal with sin? Because if when Christ died, that atoned for all of my sin, then why do I need to even worry about the sin in my life? <laughs> because sin still breaks not your relationship with the Lord, but your fellowship with the Lord and your communion with the Lord. Not only do we know that from the Word of God, we also know that from your personal experience because how has it gone for you when you've committed your way to sin and you've continued to walk in it? The very first thing that I see people do is fall out of fellowship with the church where we gather for the corporate worship of God because they just don't want to be faced with the sin in their life. You see, we always quote 1 John 1, 9 to sinners, right? If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We like to quote that to people sharing the gospel, but you do realize that was written for us, the church. And you need to be reminded of that when you come in here for worship. You've been set free. Confess your sins. You've had a sacrifice to atone for your sins so that you are free to worship. Confess your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Confess your sins. Prepare your heart for coming into this place and calling out to God in worship. Don't dare come. Flippantly and arrogantly unwilling to confess your sins. Don't come hiding your sin in your heart. Come with a cleansed heart. Come confessing and repenting before the Lord. He has set you free so that you can worship. Now that was a sacrifice, but there's one phrase in here that deals with the worshiper. Notice verse 14. This is absolutely amazing. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or set apart for the sake of worship. By one offering, you've been made perfect. In fact, the word perfect is in the perfect tense in the Greek. Remember what that is? Single, one-time, effective action 
where the results of that action continue forward. Meaning when Christ died, your sins were atoned for and you are forever in a state of having been set apart for the glory of God. You were sanctified. You were washed. You were made holy by one sacrifice. Meaning you've been made perfect for the purpose of worship. Now, just as a side note, I do want to talk more about how you were made perfect, and we'll turn to John 4 to do that. But before we do that, I want to bring up a side note into one of the things that we dealt with while we were at youth camp. And it could have been in any church because I've heard this song, or I know many of you have heard this song at different places before. But we sang a song by Brandon Lake called Gratitude. Tyler, can you throw up the words? Is that even possible? I can read you the, the verses or the verses that I got so wired up about. Let me just read you the particular stanza and if he finds them. Do what? Where did it go? Can you bring it back? All right. So here, here, here's the part that Miss, Miss Burma said, you preached angry last week. I didn't think I've ever seen you do that. And I said, ah, you just didn't know. Um, but th this part made me angry. See if you can figure out what made me so angry. So I throw up my hands and I praise you again and again. Because all that I have is a hallelujah, hallelujah. I know it's not much, but I've nothing else fit for a king except for a heart singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, y'all know I'm passionate about Hebrews. I mean, that was one of the best times ever in my life when we walked through the book of Hebrews. But the passage that I just read to you is in direct contradiction to what you're singing there. You've got nothing else fit for a king? Really? You see, through the gospel, Jesus Christ died for you. And he not only made you fit, he made you perfect for that king. Through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, you've made perfect, you were made perfect for the purpose of worship. Oh, you're not just fit. No, you were designed for the purpose. And when he shed his blood through that gospel, oh my goodness, I know we just think about the idea of he forgives me for my sins, but you need to think beyond that. No, you were perfected for the purpose of coming before him and worshiping him from the inside out with your whole heart. Worship is a privilege. And we were given that privilege through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the scene and here's where I got mad and I, I blame no one but the worship leader. It hangs on the worship leader. But the lights are out. The smoke is going. Every hand in the building except a few are raised. And the music's good and the mood is set. And it sounded so sweet and the words rhyme. And he led everybody in the building in singing a song that's in direct contradiction to the accomplishments of Christ on the gospel. I got so frustrated by day three, I said out loud, this is not true about that loud. And you're like, dude, you're nitpicking. Really? Am I? Is it okay to sing something that's contradictory to the accomplishments of Christ on the cross? Is that nitpicking? When I was thinking about nitpicking, and the reason I picked that word is because somebody had actually used that word. I thought about Paul's words to Timothy about preaching. You don't have to turn there, but listen to these words. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Notice all these phrases. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching Persevere in these things, for as you do them, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. So this is Paul's nitpicking about the pulpit. Give attention, take pains, be absorbed, pay close attention, persevere. Sounds like Paul is powerfully concerned with what comes through this microphone as I stand at this pulpit. How is it that I can walk 10 feet to my right in a different microphone and I don't have to give attention, be absorbed, take pains, pay close attention or persevere. 
that true? Can I change microphones and not be so concerned about the words that I'm leading a congregation in song in? I don't think that's true. In fact, there's other verses up there that made me fly off the handle. Is it still up there, Tyler? Can you throw them back up there? I know it's not much, but I've nothing else fit for a king except, I got one thing, a heart singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, I love the word hallelujah, and somewhere along these worship sermons, we're going to deal with the four hallelujahs in Revelations. I may get Johnny to help me. There's four hallelujahs that we sing in Revelations. But that's all you've got. You're missing the very first sacrifice that you're required to bring as a child of God. And Paul's going to eventually deal with that when we get to Romans chapter 12. You see, it takes him 11 chapters to lay out the gospel. And then he comes to our first offering or our first sacrifice in Romans 12.1. Listen to these words. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your first sacrifice is not with your lips, it's your life. Don't bring God your words until you've laid your life on the altar. That's what He's after. And if you've laid your life down, your lips will follow. But I found it fascinating from my own personal experience that sometimes my lips go where my life won't. Meaning I can say things that are about throat deep, but I know my heart is far off somewhere else. Because of the gospel, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have something more than a hallelujah. He's not looking for that. He's looking for your life. For you to offer it, uh, offer it up to Him in worship. As in, here's my life. Take it and use it however you see fit. Somebody prayed that this morning. So you might. That's your first offering. That's the offering that you make every day in your personal worship. And that's the offering that we need to make as a congregation when we gather for worship. Here's our life. Take it and use it however you see fit. I don't care. Take my life when I go to work. Take my life on the way to work. Take my words. Take my thought. Take my hands. Take my feet. Take everything that you want as long as you use them for your glory. It is the first thing that I bring. Yeah, I was not a fan of that song. You remember what Hezekiah used when he was singing? When I read 1 Chronicles 29? What was it, Jeremy? You remember? He used the words of David and Asaph the sphere. The seer, not the sphere, the seer. That's interesting. He led worship with the words of God. Now, I, I, please, I'm not saying that's where we need to go. But I've told you this before. When I went to Rwanda and I'm sitting there, right? And yeah, I told you, dancing, singing, all this stuff. I finally asked the guy, I said, what song is that? And he smiled and he said, oh, that's Psalm something. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, they're singing the psalm all the way through. And he said, they do that. They didn't write the words. They sing the psalm. Now, here's the problem with English language. When we sing the psalms, it don't sound so good. But when they sang it in their language, it was absolutely beautiful because it just rolled off their tongue. And if you've ever heard the psalm sung in Hebrew, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It just kind of rolls. It's absolutely beautiful. But for some reason, we don't care so much anymore about the words that we sing as long as they sound good. But when Hezekiah restarted worship, he was so concerned about what they were singing. They sang the songs of David, i.e., let's just sing the psalms. I know they're okay. Right? We got to be careful with our words. Last thing is I want to take you to, I told you the worshiper was better from verse 14, for by one offering he is perfected. But I want to show you a different way he describes that. So go with me to John chapter 4. I, I don't like much. A few minutes. Not a whole lot. So anyway, if you want to study worship, you've got to study Hebrews. But John chapter 4 is very helpful as well.
John chapter 4, let's start in verse 16 so you'll catch up to the context. Jesus said to the woman at the well, go call your husband, John 4, 16. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. To which Jesus responded, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worship. Now that is the most significant change of channel that you're going to find in the Bible. I no longer want to talk about the sin in my life. Let's talk about something else. How about worship? But what I'm so thankful about is that the Lord included it so we could learn something about worship. Now notice verse 20 again. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship Samaritans, what you don't know. We Jews worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But notice verse 23. Here we go. An hour is coming and now is, meaning the change took place when Jesus showed up. When true worshipers, and I love the word true because it literally means these are the real ones. These are the authentic ones, meaning there's a lot of worshipers. But let's just talk about the ones who are true, who are authentic, who are real. OK, true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for such people. The father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I want to talk about the change that God has made in the worshipers, but let me just mention briefly, you need to see that the Lord is seeking these people. Which reminds us that not only is worship a privilege, but it's a responsibility. Don't ever question the reason that God saved you. The reason that God saved you is that you might worship him. You're going to do that for the rest of eternity. OK, so let's go ahead and start now. But the change that he made in worshipers is this phrase in spirit and in truth or in spirit and truth. One preposition governing both of these words, meaning they're not meant to be separated. So let's think about this for just a second, because if you pick up 12 commentaries, you're going to get 12 opinions. So let me let me deal with it. I'm think how the text deal with it. Some people say that we worship in spirit, which means we can now worship with our heart. I like that. I don't think that's what he means, but that is absolutely true. We can worship God with every molecule in our body now because we've been perfected by the blood of Jesus. I mean, every fiber of my being can glorify God now because of what Christ has done. OK, but again, I don't think that's what that means. Some people say that we worship in spirit, meaning now that we're the child of God, we're filled with the spirit of God. And it should be capital spirit because he's talking about we worship in the Holy Spirit. Again, that's true, but I don't think that's what he's doing here. Let me go on to truth and then I'll back up and tell you what I think he's doing. What does it mean that we worship in spirit and truth? Well, God is true. Everything that he does is truth. His written word is truth. The living word was truth. He's all of truth. There's no lie within him. If you're talking about God, you're talking about truth. Now, right in the middle of these two phrases, in spirit and truth, in spirit and truth is this idea. God is spirit. And I realize and I'm convinced that that's how we need to take these verses, meaning true worshipers are of God. They are not God, but they are of God. Because God is spirit and God is truth. And you and I, as the born again children of God, worship God as being of God. Now, we've been changed. We are the children of God. We are not who we once were. We have been John chapter one, born of God. We are in John chapter three, born of the spirit. And when we get to John chapter four, we are the ones who are in spirit and truth because we've been born of God. Here's the idea. And let me. Just briefly, I could go on and on and on about this truth. Worship is not for unbelievers. Worship is not received from unbelievers. And when I say worship is a privilege, you need to know that it is you and you alone, the children of God, that God seeks to worship him. 
and that God gives the privilege and honor of worshiping him and he receives it. That is mind boggling. The one who created the heavens and the earth with his spoken word actually hears our worship and it brings him pleasure. And he enjoys that. Oh, listen, what we do is of the highest degree of privilege that we might worship him. Now, here's my thought. If worship is for the children of God, why is it that we try to make our worship attractive to lost people? If a lost person goes to your church and enjoys the worship, I would ask you, have you changed your form so much that you've forgotten your function to glorify God? Because it should be very awkward for him. Because he worships someone else. You see, John chapter 4 is so helpful for us to understanding worship. Worship should only be enjoyable, exciting, and comfortable for the child of God. Because he alone is the one that's been set apart for the purpose. Now let me briefly talk about the sacrifices and we'll be finished this morning. I want you to quickly go with me to Romans 12.1. And again, I'll visit this passage because I do not want you to forget it. These are the offerings that we now bring. I'm going to give you three things we bring and then we're done. Okay. Romans 12, 1. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God, some translations, to present your body a living and holy, you've been made holy, sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's the first thing you bring, okay? Your life. Secondly, run to Hebrews to the right, chapter 13. Go to the end of Paul's stuff. Again, 1st, 2nd Timothy. Titus, Philemon, you'll come to Hebrews chapter 13. You'll notice the second thing that we bring. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name and do not neglect the doing of good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In other words, after your life, now comes the lips. And the lips are to express thanksgiving to God for everything. And once I realize that, our prayers on Sunday morning is changed. Because we praise God for all things. We thank God for all things. I thought this has to be a part of our worship. We have to offer him, offer our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. But notice what's included in that. Also the doing of good. Do you realize that when you help your neighbor in need, those are sacrifices and offerings that are pleasing to the Lord? I know you're worried about how much you should give them, but if you'll stop thinking about how much you should give them and realize that it's a sacrifice and offering that God finds pleasing, that's the thing that motivates your heart. I'm going to help them as an offering to the Lord. The third thing that's mentioned, and I, again, we're not talking about these things. I may pick them up later, but go to the right to 1 Peter chapter 2. Just a couple of pages. And we'll deal, we'll deal with the last thing that we bring to the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to Him, the Lord... As to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up, here you go, sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices that are, notice, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you've got something else to bring, and in 1 Peter it's described as spiritual sacrifices. So here's the last question for us this morning. What in the world is that? Well, 
we haven't walked through First Peter. We will. And if I change my mind, then I'll let you know. But where I stand now with those spiritual sacrifices is that's everything in your life. It includes everything. You're like, I can offer up my trip to work to the Lord as a spiritual sacrifice. Absolutely. Whatever you do, whatever you think about, whatever you pray about, whatever you consider, whatever you sing, let it be a sacrifice to glorify God. What about my conversations at work? Absolutely. Why don't you set those apart for the glory of God and offer those up as spiritual sacrifices and let all your conversations at work glorify God? What about your labors or your work? Why don't you work at it in such a way so as to glorify God and offer that up as a spiritual sacrifice? Why don't you just do everything as spiritual sacrifices? Why don't you go play ball to the glory of God? Why don't you just spend all your free time to the glory of God? Why don't all your conversations and all your relationships just be given to the Lord as a spiritual sacrifice going, I'm just going to glorify God with this too. And pretty soon you'll begin to see that every part and parcel of your life, you are offering up to God as a spiritual sacrifice in order to glorify Him. But it begins with your life. It moves to your lips. And then it spreads out to all things within your life because you want to glorify God with every bit of it. Worship is not what we thought. But let's learn together what the Bible describes it to be and make the changes that we need to make in order to worship Him more faithfully. Let's pray.